Comfort and Coming Glory, Part 2. Comfort and Coming Glory, Part 2. Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. And as you see there, we're going to focus really on verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4. Uh, last week, we introduced the passage and looking at verses 1 and 2. And I didn't get through verse 2, so we're going to go back and go into verse 4. But before we do that, there's a question that comes up, um, an observation. Uh, What when there's a sense in which a person loses hope? When they lose hope, what happens? I mean, you can think historically people who uh, were given some sense of assurance, but yet it was never realized. Uh, A promise made, but it was never realized. Or we can think through history, and my mind goes to, we can think about World War II, and we can think about concentration camps. And if you interview those that survived, most, almost, if you might say all, would say one thing that helped me sort of get through it was I had a sense of hope. I just thought tomorrow would be the day. And you keep thinking tomorrow will be the day and tomorrow will be the day. Now, now some along the way, they die and that day never came for them. But others in interviews, they would say, how did you survive? How did you get? And they would undoubtedly say, I had a sense of hope. I just thought that somehow there would be a breakthrough. Now, for many, and we would pray that it had been more than that, but for many, that moment came. Hope was realized. Someone rescued them. Their life would never be the same, but nonetheless, they were survivors of a concentration camp, and in part because they had a sense of hope. Uh, We go through a world today, and there are people who don't have hope. They lose hope, and when a person loses hope. What happens? They're discouraged, obviously. Uh, They wonder whether or not life is even worth going on because they have no sense of hope. Now, in Isaiah, we see hope just resonating throughout the passages time and time again. Now, when I say Isaiah, I mean, in forward, we see it. Whereas in the past, it was a sense of judgment and woes. There was concern But now a corner has turned in the book as we've looked at in the last two weeks where Isaiah, the message from God is to give hope, to offer comfort. And that's why this section begins with comfort. Oh, comfort, my people, says your God or says Yahweh, who is your God. Comfort is necessary. And if a person doesn't have that sense of comfort, they too will become discouraged and even despondent. And this is why the scripture, I think, even tells us that we should even weep with those who weep and we should do what? Rejoice with those who rejoice. And in this passage, we're going to notice again, something is very foundational, even to the rest of the book itself. And especially for 48, this sense where God is saying, I'm going to give you comfort. I comfort you in the midst of your trial." in the midst of your difficulty. And Judah is away at this point in Babylon. They're in their own concentration camp, if you will. And they're wondering, will we get out? Will we survive? Has God abandoned us? And there's a word to be spoken to them 
that anyone that would answer this call in verse one, they should cry out that the people of God should be comforted. Now, we noticed some things about Isaiah last week, and and I won't go through them all because each time I review it, it sets me back a little bit further to get through such a great passage and such great chapters. But we notice how some people confuse about Isaiah 40 moving forward. Foundational reason that they believe that is because they want to discount the miraculous. They want to deny the prophetic voice. And yes, from chapter 39 coming to a close in chapter 40, there is a wide gap of time that's taken place. As a matter of fact, a hundred years after Isaiah dies, the people of God are now in captivity. But that doesn't mean that Isaiah cannot speak to those people. And what's interesting, when we look at how the New Testament uses Isaiah and quotes from it, it is always the book of Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet said, that being Jesus Christ making those pronouncements, Paul making those pronouncements as well. We see it in the Gospels, we see it in Acts, we see it in Romans, where all of them would say Isaiah was speaking. So Isaiah speaking prophetically, even though uh, the events took place after his death, but God is speaking through to say, comfort the people of God. This theological unity in the book itself. There is no second Isaiah. Some would propose that it is an unknown author who writes from the Babylonian exile. No, it is Isaiah himself speaking the very words of God. And that's why the words are comforting, because it's God speaking to the people. And something else that I didn't uh, note for you last week when it comes to the theories about second and even third Isaiah. And some would say there's a third Isaiah beginning in Isaiah 56. But interesting enough, if you were to look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and the most uh, ancient manuscripts that we have of Isaiah, full and complete. And if you were to look at the scroll of Isaiah and you would see Isaiah 39 and it goes seamlessly into Isaiah 40, there is no break. And so we trust the word of God that God can speak prophetically through his servants. Do we not? Absolutely we do. And then we notice something else in Isaiah 40 verse 2. He says, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Uh, The ESV says, speak tenderly. And other translations will say that well, but a very literal and maybe you might even say um, preferred translation is just the literal sense of it where it says, speak to the heart of Jerusalem, that is speak in a way that is wanting to change their attitude. Speak comfort to them is what's being communicated here. I'm your covenant God, and I want those that hear me, this call to speak out, that they would be encouraged. This is quite a contrast, because if you go back to chapter 6, look at chapter 6 of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. And notice here, then verses, beginning in verse 9, it says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. He said, That is the one that is high and lifted up, said, Go and tell this people who keep on listening, but do not perceive. They keep on looking, but they don't understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears understand what their hearts in return and be healed. Then I said, oh, Lord, how long 
And he answered, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly dead. And this goes on even through verse 13. There is a pronouncement, not here of comfort, but a pronouncement of judgment. It is coming. And it did come. And now Isaiah, through the Spirit of God, is saying, but now comfort them. The testation has come to an end. And notice as well, we we noticed something else about the outline was this. And if we can just go to that next slide and it communicates first, there's a tone of covenant. There's a tone, obviously, of convincing. And the message is threefold. And that's where we left off last week, this threefold message. So what are we supposed to speak to the heart of Jerusalem? How do we speak to them to convince them and to not be discouraged well, there are three parts to the message and set off by, as we noted, that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So right here, these three subordinate clauses communicating the message of God to the people of God. They are to say to them, first, your warfare has ended. And what does this mean? Um, actually, a, a time of literal warfare. Uh, it can mean just a time of fixed service. Uh, even in Job, it just means the duration of life. And it's best to understand it as a time of hardship, a period of hardship. Or some translation would say, the period of your hard labor, your hard service is over. And indeed, when they were in exile, they would labor hard. And that's one reason that God would judge Babylon, because God judges Babylon because they were not compassionate towards the people of God when they were in exile. But God will then, because of his graciousness, do what? He will bring them back. He will forgive. Notice Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah 30. Why does it end? Why is the service over? Well, mainly because of God's gracious intervention. God's gracious intervention. It says in verse 15, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing, and you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore, we sh- you shall flee, and we shall ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue shall be swift. They thought they could avoid the judgment. God is saying, no, you cannot avoid it because it's coming from my hand. Then he says, 1,000 will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop. And as a signal on a hill. So God's hand is going to come. They think they can avoid this exile. They think they can avoid the Babylonians. God says, no, they will be swifter than you. This verse 18. Here is divine intervention. Therefore, and notice what it says. This is so beautiful, isn't it? The Lord, our Yahweh, longs to be gracious to you. Just pause there for a moment and absorb that. God is saying, yes, despite your stubbornness, which we see throughout uh, this book, I long to be gracious to you. I anticipate myself being gracious to you, and I want to show you my mercy. And he says, and therefore he waits on high 
to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. He is longing to show graciousness to you, but do you long for him? And this is a wonderful picture even of salvation itself. And all of us were like sheep that have gone astray, were we not? All of us, according to Romans, we were enemies of God and we were sinners and we were ungodly. What does it tell us? He demonstrated his love towards us while we were yet. That's the beauty of it, isn't it? It's not. And some people, as you may have talked to over a period of time, and you've witnessed the gospel to them, and they hear what you're saying about the gospel. And isn't it true that so often people will say, when you ask them, come to Christ, they will say, wait until I get it together. Or did you say that? (laughs) Wait, there's some things that I have to take care of. There's some things in my life that I have to change. And then come back to me. Well, that's not the gospel, amen. The gospel is that he demonstrates his love towards us while we were yet enemies and ungodly and helpless and sinners, according to Romans chapter 5. And this is what we see here. I long to be gracious to you. The text doesn't say, I long to be gracious when you are. When you reach your full potential, Judah, then I will show graciousness towards you. No, it's not that at all. He is longing for them to be gracious if they would simply see their need. And this is what we see here. There's a second consideration here. The comfort of, of gracious intervention. Well, the comfort is simply that because God is a gracious God that intervenes, which we see in Isaiah 30, 15 to 18. And really right there in 18, notice what he says in Isaiah 40. Go back there and he says that her iniquity has been removed. Why? Because God is a gracious God. One example, let me give you a biblical example of it. Um, in Numbers chapter 14, Numbers 14, um, the stubborn people of God as they are in the wilderness and God is ready to strike down the people of God and to make another. What does God, what does the man of God do? Moses prays for the people and it says there that God makes a statement, I have pardoned them. Wait a minute, you pardon them? On what basis did you pardon them? Because Moses intervened for them. And God displayed his graciousness towards them. His gracious heart then becomes evident. So they are encouraged by this word that says your iniquity, a very strong word that is used here for sin, it's removed. Removed in what way? Because did they pay for it through the exile? Um, did they earn it because of their punishment? No, they received it simply because of the gracious hand of God. And I would also say in the book of Isaiah, we must see everything to a, through a coming servant. And that coming servant would be the sacrifice that would make all of this available. The third encouragement is this. The third part that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So the comfort of chastisement that is completed. The chastisement is completed. They've been in exile and God is saying, now I have punished you sufficiently. But I want you to notice something before we go on and try to understand what does this mean, double for all of our sins. Why this language? Um, It is this. Notice what it says, though that she has received of the Lord's hand. 
Because you pause for a moment, and what we need to understand here is of the Lord's hand. How is that? Because God ultimately is the one who would send them into exile. They're there because of their sin. Yes, the Babylonians came and took them away, but his hand, as it was prophetically stated throughout these opening chapters, eventually you will be taken away. Why? Because of your stubbornness. It's from the Lord's hand. And, but yet, this is a New Testament principle for us as well, even for believers. There is an application for us because the writer of Hebrews tells us what? That every son that he receives, what, what does he do to every son that he receives? They receive chastisement. And it produces what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. As a matter of fact, it goes on to tell us what? Uh, if you have never received chastisement of the Lord, then you're what? You're not one of his. Because God uses the difficulty that he brings in our life to bring about what? Sanctification. And I think all of us would agree that there have been moments in our life when we've gone through difficulty and those would be some of the most sanctifying moments. Now, it's wonderful to have mountaintop experiences, but don't we tend to learn more in the valley? We tend to learn more in the valley because we find ourselves being more sober, introspective. We find ourselves asking questions that we sometimes don't ask when we're on a mountaintop. We find ourselves seeking after the Lord and says, Lord, is there something in me that I need to change? Now, we, let me say this. It's important that we understand. I think we should ask that question, is there something in me? Uh, but it's not always something in you. It's something God saying, I'm going to purge so that more of Christ can come out of you. I will prune, as the scripture tells us, that you will, you will blossom even more. And we do this all the time. Some of you may have a green thumb. Some of you have a, a thumb, but it's not. <laughs> but what we have to do at times, I have roses in the house and, and we prune them back and they're around the yard and I prune them back and I can see them grow all the more. And what I'll do is I go to those roses and I'll snip them and I'll dig around them and I'll put the fertilizer there and I'll water them properly and make sure they get good sunshine and I see the buds coming out in places that they weren't before. They were beautiful when I saw them, but I thought there's more potential, if you will. And so the Lord does that with us. It's not always because there is some wrong in us. The Lord is saying, I'm bringing more of Christ out of you. Of course, the classic example being Job. And his counselors got it wrong. Surely, Job, there's something that you've done wrong. That is the ways of God, but it's not always the ways of God. It may be your sin that you're being chastened for. It is simply maybe that God is saying, I am pruning you so that you can be. And even if it's chastening for sin, if you don't resist, you will be more like Christ. And on this example, if it's not because of sin, but it's simply he is bringing out more of Christ in you, the benefit is the same, is it not? So if you want to be more like Christ, then we need to surrender. It's from the Lord's hand. This is what we have to understand. They must take responsibility for their actions. Some of them may have thought, well, we're in exile because the gods of Babylon are more powerful than Yahweh. And maybe they thought the reason we're still in exile is because Yahweh is a localized God. And this would have been a part of the thinking of the culture. Well, because we went to war and um, Israelites 
forces were defeated. Surely Marduk and the other gods are superior to Yahweh. They may not have started that way, but after some while, they would have begun to doubt what has happened here. Maybe Yahweh is a local god like these other deities. And of course he's not. They're in exile because of their sin. There's some texts that prove this. Look with me. Let's go through a number of them. Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah 50. And as we walk through this, I am going to um, answer these questions for you. Eventually, I'm going to show you some questions that we need to answer when we come to the next verse. But for now, this idea of double for their sins. Isaiah 50, verse 1, thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent you your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions your mother sent away. Notice Isaiah 42. Go back to Isaiah 42, verse 24. It says, Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel for plunderers? Was it not the Lord? So plainly stated here, the plunderers being the Babylonians, they take them away as spoil because they have defeated them. It is the Lord that did it against whom you have sinned and in whose ways they were not willing to walk and whose law they did not obey. Look at Isaiah 43 verse 24. You have brought me not sweet cane with money, nor have you filled me with fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Look at Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48 communicates the same thing. I paid attention to my commandments. Then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Isn't that beautiful language? And what he says, Israel, Judah, do you not hear me? If you had paid attention to my word and the very commandments that give you life, then your life would be like a river that is flowing. Your righteousness like the waves of the sea and the waves of the sea abounding consistently. But you did not. Notice verse 19. Your descendants would have been like the sand and your offspring like its grains. Their name would have never been cut off or destroyed from my presence. But you didn't listen. You didn't heed. Therefore, go all the way with me to Isaiah chapter 64. We see this again. They are responsible for the exile, their sinfulness. Isaiah 64, verse 5. It says, you meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness. you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time, and shall we be saved? But think with me for a moment. Israel goes off into exile, but in one sense, it's even more egregious. Why is it more egregious? It's more egregious because the southern kingdom saw the northern kingdom go into exile. You would think, let's learn a lesson here. Our northern brothers have been taken away by the Assyrians, 722. And then 586, we're taken away. That's a long period of time to learn a lesson, is it not? But yet they did not. And here in Isaiah 64, it says, we have sinned for a long time. And indeed they had. Interesting how the heart can be, isn't it? 
Um, isn't it interesting how you hear one and they fall into the same sin as another person did? You hear the story of a, of a politician. It's the story of, a, of another preacher who is falling. You say to yourself, what? couldn't they learn from the other person? But we need to say the same thing of ourselves, shouldn't we? Couldn't we learn from that other person? We saw them go down that road and it didn't end well. Why did that person think that somehow it would be different for them? And that's the arrogance of the human heart. They think that somehow uh, the consequences of life won't fall upon me, but then they do. Judah should have learned. The Assyrians come and take away their northern brothers. And, and instead of being this sense of humble by it, for a period of time they were, but instead of remaining humble, uh, they become arrogant. And they even think that, no, we won't be taken away. Because this is in part the message even of Jeremiah. And what is Jeremiah saying? There's some of you are crying out, peace, peace. But Jeremiah says what? There will be no peace. You will be taken away. And that's the problem when you have false teachers in your midst. Because the false teachers will exclaim a message that is not biblical, but it does in fact do what? What does it do? It tickles the ears. And don't we see that today? Ear-tickling preaching. And all of them should be... I can't say that. Uh, No, I'll say just taken to a spiritual woodshed. Some of you, what, what is a woodshed? Some of you are thinking, what is that? Ask your neighbor. Who knows what a woodshed is? Okay, there's some of you young folks who are like, what is, what is he talking about, a woodshed? Is it like a barn or is it like a girl? That? <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, it was their sin. But yet, God's intervention, God's grace, he says, comfort them, comfort them. The labor is over with. The iniquity is removed. They paid double for all their sins. And that's the third part of this message we need to understand. How should we understand double for all their sins? Uh, three ways you can essentially look at it. One is double in the sense of a double payment for their sinfulness. So you pay twice as much as you should have for your sin. Or it could mean double in the sense that there was a military defeat, which there was, and there was also ensuing pain. So you paid double in one hand, you were defeated militarily, and you paid the other part of the double payment is that you were taken away in exile and all the pain that came with exile. Or it just means this, or double, it's just an idiom for a satisfying payment has been made. What you've done has indeed been egregious, but yet... The time of chastisement is over with. It, uh, your payment is paid. Um, think of it with me for a moment. Every parent in here, um, at times we make decisions. Bear the rod, hate their child. And I know kids around the world are at least uh, saying, why don't you hate me a little bit, right? Um, just spare the rod. No, but you give the rod. But you only give it in proportion to what's deserved. Just in our in a basic sense of our justice system, um, a red light is due for a ticket. Maybe it's, I don't know what the amount might be, and that's it. Maybe you have to go to traffic court. That's it. But now we learn of someone recently um, that you probably lose. It actually uh, was 
organizing his own death, paid someone to kill him so that the $10 million insurance payment could go to his son. No, that's worthy of something else. And surely the person who attempted to kill him, he, he missed him. He was right there and grazed his head. If he had killed him, then that's justifiable for another level of punishment, is it not? So it has to be consistent with the punishment itself. And what it's simply saying here, you paid double for your sins. Okay, it's satisfied. Is there a formula that we can look at in scripture that says exactly? No, we can't. It's simply a language that God uses to say, I'm satisfied with your payment. Your time of exile is over. Just like times I was myself growing up and told our kids at the time, okay, you're, a, uh, you're in timeout. For how long? For a weekend. Go to your room. And a week. Um, and that's been probably the most. Um, no, there was one time a month. <laughs> Like a month of, it was something that you couldn't do for a month, right? And uh, there are a couple of times I felt like, you know, that's it for the rest of your life, right? <laughs> that's it. You're in punishment. Talk to me again when you're 45. <laughs> Dad, I'll be long gone before then. Well, not if you carry on this way. <laughs> it's reasonable in the mind of God. Now notice, I think conceptually though, There is a connection. Turn with me to the book of Exodus. There is a connection in the book of Exodus. And when it says, even when someone says they paid double for their sin, think about it. They're not able to pay double for their sins. They can't even pay once for their sins. So how can they possibly pay double? That's the reason that a servant may come. That's the reason that the suffering servant even must come. They can't pay double for their sins. The gracious intervention is absolutely necessary. But there is a conceptual connection, I believe, in Exodus 22. Exodus 22. Notice this. Notice Exodus 22. Then verse, yeah, verse 4. It says, if what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay, it says there, double. He shall pay double for it. And then in verse 9, it comes up again. Well, in verse 7, it comes up again. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him in man's house, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. And then in verse 9, it says that, he whom the judges condemn shall pay double. Now here the word double is different. It literally is just a word that says two. He shall pay twofold. So, but conceptually the thought is here. What's reasonable restitution? And so here with Israel, you shall pay double. It's satisfied. I accept it from the Lord. All her sins. Look with me at Jeremiah, Jeremiah 16, Jeremiah 16. We make another connection to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, that prophet who pronounces that the Babylonians are indeed coming. You will not escape it. And we notice in Jeremiah 16, beginning in verse 14, there's a context of restoration. And then it says, verse 17, for my eyes are. 
are on all their ways. They're not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Pause there for a moment and see, this is an important verse because some would have been te- would have taught not only in the, the time of Judah and the ensuing um, exodus, but in other times, the Lord doesn't see. He's not fully aware of what we're doing, but everything happens before the eyes of the Lord. Remember, if you were to look at the book of Kings and what do you see? And they did evil where? What did they do the evil in the what? Sight of the Lord. And so here, but notice verse 18. I will first doubly repay your iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. So God says judgment isn't indeed coming. But you need to understand. Go back with me to Isaiah. And what I want you to understand, what you need to grasp, even for this, from what is being taught here in Isaiah now, yes, there is sin. Yes, we're responsible for it, but we should all be thankful for the gracious intervention of God. Amen. Because where would we be? The scripture tells us who could stand if God were to mark your iniquity. No one can stand before the Lord. This is why, and we're going to go there in a moment, I believe. Yes, I do have time to do it. We're going to go there in a moment. And Isaiah, this wonderful picture of Isaiah in chapter 6 where he's called, what does he see? He He sees the Lord, what? High and lifted up, greatly exalted. And he realizes that I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm amongst a people of unclean lips. But what does the Lord do? He takes from the fire and he touches your cleansed. He recognizes his sinfulness, but yet this communion Sunday, shouldn't we all be thankful that he made a way? I mean, where would you be? Those of you that know the Lord, where would you be this very moment? Who knows? Who knows what sort of life you would be living right now? But we do know this. I know what your eternal destiny would be. And it would be a time of eternal separation from the living God but yet he intervened. Look at Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41. He says, beautifully stated here, verse 13, for I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says you do not fear, I will help you. I'm the one that will intervene. Look at Isaiah uh, 51. Go to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51 and then 19. Um, Verse 18 says this, There is none to guide her among all the sons she has born, nor is there one to take her by the hand among all the sons she has reared. These two things have befallen you, who mourn for you, the devastation and destruction, famine and his sword. How shall I comfort you? Where would the comfort come from? Look at Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. And here it states what? So ultimately we realize, yes, who's going to comfort them? They're going to be devastated. The sword is going to come. They're going to be taken away to a foreign land. They'll begin to, whether or not I am still Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, who is the creator of heaven and earth. But notice again the intervention of God. Um, verse 6, 
Isaiah 61 says, but you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations and in their riches, you will boast. Notice verse seven. Instead of your shame, you will have what? What portion will they have? A double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. God's gracious intervention will come about. There's a comfort that comes because God is in absolute control. Now, this message of hope continues. Go back to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, the message of hope continues in verses 3 to 5. In verses 3 to 5, there's, a, there's comfort that continues. Why is there hope here? Because there is a hope of a delivering presence. The people of God will be delivered not by their own abilities. Of course not. I mean, there is no hope in self because it was actually self that brought them into exile. So there must be something or someone outside of them and greater than them and holier than them that will bring about this change. And it is none other than Yahweh, the covenant keeping God. Despite their failure to maintain the covenant, Yahweh will. And so here the message of hope continues here is a people who are exiled and wondering, doubting, maybe even despairing. It was uh, Michael Grisante, Old Testament scholar, teaches here at the seminary, colleague, friend, who said this about this sort of transition here. It says, the prophet comforted God's people by promising them that God would bring them back to their beloved land of promise. In the face of Israel's skepticism, Isaiah described Yahweh as the one and only true God who is willing and able to bring this promise to pass. The only one that's able. The only one that's capable. Uh, what does the scripture tell us in, an, in a New Testament sense? Um, with man, this is impossible. But with God, what all things are what? Are possible. You cannot on your own. Gain neighbor of God. You cannot Israel, Judah, escape from the mighty hand of Babylon, but their leader is I. My hand will come. The hand that, as we saw in other passages, there was this calling out. Is there anyone that can take you by the hand, Judah, and lead you? And ultimately, there was not. There was no one among them that could do it. And that's why the Lord must be the one who can come and take them by the hand. And so what do we see here in these, this, these next verses, verses 3 to 5, the message of a coming glory. This is what we see. And this is in three parts. First, there's a voice of comfort that comes. There's a path of comfort that comes. And there's a revelation of comfort that comes. Now, I want to answer some questions for you. Let me give them to you now. You can just put them up there. All of these questions that I want to answer for you as we work through this part of the passage. Which voice is calling? What is the cultural relevance? Why must the way be cleared? What is the Isaiah and what is the New Testament ap application? And then what is the life application? So in these final 12 minutes or so, let's pay attention to verses 3. And we're only going to look at verses 3 and 4. 
I know it says five, but you saw earlier, I looked at verse five and I can't do it because it says there, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. And that's the first occurrence of glory. So I need to develop that for you. And I realized myself and I says, Carl, stop right there. I literally did. I was praying and just says, no, we're going to stop here. And it'll be a beautiful place to even stop because when we come back again, our focus will solely be on verse five. And what does it mean that this glory is going to be revealed and all flesh will see it. But for now, the message of a coming glory. Let's answer these questions that are before us. And question number one, which voice is calling? That's what we need to understand. Notice verse three, a voice is calling. And what is interesting, it doesn't tell us, okay, whose voice is this? Are there voices? No singular. A voice is calling. And it cannot be stressed too much that um, although they have violated their covenant contract with the Lord, God's faithfulness will override that. And now he says, cry out this voice Do we need to know who it is? We don't. And I think it's on purpose because it's not the voice itself that's important. It's the message. And that's what we need to understand. Even when we deliver the message of God, we are not important. Do we agree with that? But the message is absolutely primary. And so here we see in one sense the continuation of Isaiah's ministry from chapter 6. Now do me a favor. Do this with me. Keep your finger in Isaiah 40. And then I know it's hard if you have a smartphone or something like that, uh, but find a way. (laughs) Isaiah 40 and then Isaiah 6. So what we see here, this voice of comfort that goes out. Remember earlier, comfort or comfort. So he says, many voices should say to the people of God, be comforted. Yes, your circumstances say, how can we be comforted in this foreign land? You remember Isaiah, no, I'm sorry, not Isaiah, Psalm 137 and Psalm 137. And it says, and the people will say to us, sing us one of your songs. And in Isaiah 137, it says, how can we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? They would have been discouraged. Note that, just note Psalm 137. So they're there. And how can they be comforted? This really, this ministry is the continuation of Isaiah's call in Isaiah 6. How do we see connections here? Notice Isaiah 6, verse 3. And it says in verse 3, And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. A voice is calling out. The earth is full of his glory. Verse 5, it says, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it. Here in Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, a voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness or clear the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Also, what we'll notice, notice verse 5. There's a connection between Isaiah 6, 3 and these, these voices, that is, the cherubim, the sinner calling out the holiness of God. And then in verse 5, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. So what is stated here in Isaiah 6, 3, we will see it even more fully in the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 5. Go back with me to Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah 6, verse 4. 
And it says, and the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So imagine that. What a picture this is when you see God high and lifted up and there you are in the temple and it's the shaking that's taking place because why the voice of God is speaking. And we see this throughout scripture. Um, The psalmist tells us that the voice of the Lord thunders. And as that voice thunders, it's it's not the physical aspect of it. It's just the reality that this is the omnipotent, all-powerful God that is speaking. And what is he speaking? Go to my people and speak to them. And then notice in verse 6 of Isaiah 40. Go back to Isaiah 40. So we see this scene in verse 4. The foundations is trembling. The temple was filling with smoke. And he says, a voice of him called out. And then Isaiah 40, verse 6, it says there, a voice says, call out. So in Isaiah 6, call out. Isaiah 40, call out. Then it answers, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. That's the message. Call out. Go back to Isaiah 6, verse 11. Again, a compliment to Isaiah 6 and his calling. Isaiah 6, 11, he says, Then I said, How long? And he answered, Until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly destitute. Look at Isaiah 40. Then in verse 9, because he says, Now cry out until this takes place. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. And that's the wonderful thing that is happening here. We go from devastation to now hope, we go from judgment to comfort. We go from condemnation that you should be hopeful that God will be faithful to you. Beautifully stated. There's a voice. Next is this. Let's answer this question. What is the cultural relevance of this? Go back to Isaiah 40. Because it says here, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley up, every mountain down, the rough become a plain, the rugged, a broad valley. Now we have to remember to understand or answer this question. A part of Isaiah's approach is one of demonstrating contrast and comparison. Um, Is there any other God like me? I know of none. Call out to your idols and see if they can answer you. They will not. He wants the people of God to see that Yahweh is superior He's superior to the deities of Babylon. And so this is another way for him to make the argument. You say, how so? The voice is calling for what? For the highway to be constructed for Yahweh to come. Culturally, we need to understand something. This is why it's so important sometimes you dig a bit further and you discover some things about culture and the significance of it um, to a given text. So, what would have been true, and this was not just true in Babylonian culture or Mesopotamian culture, um, in many cultures, when a king would come, what would you do? If there, were, if there were obstacles in the road, what would you do? You would clear it out, would you not? Absolutely, you do. We, we do that today, do we not? Uh, when the president of the United States, States comes, uh, what, what would happen to Roscoe Boulevard? 
That's right. What happens if a president or a senator or someone, uh, they're coming and there's supposed to be a marathon? Does a marathon take place? No, no one is running by the presidential. Hey, president, how's it going? I'm making good time here. No, it doesn't occur. You clear the way, do you not? You make a path for that dignitary to come through, and that would have been true as well for this culture, uh, a path for our dignitaries to come through. But God says, oh, no, they're insignificant. And as well, what would have been a part of it, and it was very much a part of the, the festivities of Babylonian culture to have these pathways that were clear, and it would be a festival to recognize their deities. And so they would recognize their deities as they would go along this pathway, shouting out whatever chants about Marduk or their other false deities that they have. And what he's saying here, clear a path for Yahweh. These other gods are undeserving. Any prince or ruler in Babylon is undeserving. The only path that should be cleared is for Yahweh. And how is this comforting? Because it's a statement that you should notice something here. It says, in the wilderness for the Lord. So it's not first for the people to leave. This does have the language of a second exodus. The people will leave Babylon, but what's most important is for the Lord because the Lord is going to come to his people. Because some would say, well, it's, it's only the sense in which uh, it's a road that's going to be um, made clear so that they can leave Babylon. And some would say, well, do we understand this? Um, is it a topographical, a topographical change that's going to take place? Uh, does the topography of the land change so that uh, there's a clear path for the people of God to go back? Or is it something that's beyond that, this spiritual, this ethical? And it is that. Yahweh is going to come. But say, wait a minute. When did Yahweh come to Babylon? How, how did that take place? See, here's the comfort of the message. Yahweh will come to Babylon. Then if we look at it prophetically and understand it correctly, Yahweh will come to Babylon. How will he come to Babylon? He will come through his servant. What is the first? There is in the book of Isaiah, servant. Israel is my servant, but they have failed. Okay. Then he says, if I go to the highest point, the Messiah is my servant. He will succeed. But there's also another servant in Isaiah. Cyrus is my servant, which we're going to unfold later on. Cyrus is my servant. So I believe it's a statement that is saying God will come to Babylon. How will he come to Babylon? He will come because he would defeat the, the armies of Babylon the great. How will he come? Because he will come through his servant Cyrus, who is doing all of his will. That's the beauty of it all. And that's why people were troubled even when they come up with second Isaiah. How could Isaiah talk about Cyrus the Great when there is no Cyrus um, during the life of Isaiah? Well, that's the beauty of prophetic word, isn't it? So why should they be comforted? Yahweh is going to come to you. There's a way. When we come back again, I'm going to develop this idea. I don't have time now to look at the way. If you just look at the word, when you see the way through the book of Isaiah, starting in chapter 2 all the way to 66, you see this sense of a way is made, a way is made, a way is made, a way is made. Why? 
so the covenant-keeping God can come. So let every valley, every road, not the grounds changing, but an attitude that will change. It will make a way for him to come back. Is there a New Testament application? Of course there is. And I'll close on this note. Go with me to, let's look at Mark 1 first. Mark 1. And when we meet again, we'll, I'll give you more thoughts about this way as we go into look, as we look at, I'm sorry, as we look at um, verse 5 and the glory of the Lord being revealed. Matthew, I keep saying that, Mark 1, sorry. Mark 1, 3 plainly says this. Um, here's the beginning of the gospel as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching, it says, a baptism of repentance and for forgiveness of sins. John would be that voice in the New Testament. Here in Isaiah, it doesn't matter. It's the message that the people of God need to hear. Look with me at Matthew 3, the same thing communicated there. Matthew 3. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Make his path straight. So we see this throughout. Not only did we see it in John chapter 1, we see it in John chapter 3. He is the one when he sees Christ coming, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is our New Testament application for it. It will be fully be realized there. I do want us to look, if you will, just briefly. Luke. Luke 3. Again, how he states it. Because he he develops it a, a bit more. Verse 4, as it is written in the book of, of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready his path straight. Then notice verse 5, he amplifies it more. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth. And all flesh, notice this, to prepare your minds for verse 5, when we come back again, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Amen. Amen. Comfort. Uh, A people who are sinful. Um, But the Lord says, despite your sin, I'm a gracious God. I've always intervened and I'll intervene again. Comfort. For every sinner. We we learn again that no no sin is beyond God's gracious hand. Amen. (laughs) Because if it were, then we have limited an omnipotent, all-powerful God. Despite their sinfulness, the Lord says, I will come to you. This is the God we serve. You say, what about me? What about my life? Rest in this Savior. 
Know that anything that you have committed yourself, as long as you come with a sense of humility, that the Lord will forgive. And like it says in Isaiah 30 and in verse 18, it says, I long to be gracious to you. I'm waiting on high. Nothing you may be choosing today is worth it. Trust me. Father, we thank you for these words you give us, your grace and mercy that you show us. Help us to appreciate these truths. In Christ's name, amen.